Good afternoon. It is Friday, the 22nd of, of December 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to the Christmas edition of UK Column News. I'm your host, Brian Gerrish. With me, of course, is Mike Robinson, and we're delighted to have a team with us. So we've got uh, Debbie Evans, we've got Charles Mallet, we've got Ben Rubin, and all the way from Texas, fresh out of his bed, is uh, Mark Anderson. A really heroic effort, Mark. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, I'm going to start just by saying this is going to be the usual format, by the way, for the uh, end of uh, year uh, event. So we're going to we're going to have a look. Every, each one of us is going to have a look back over 2023 and and the the key issues as far as we're concerned, and also a look into future for 2024. Uh, but I think we'll just start by mentioning Bob Moran because uh, lots of people talking about his latest cartoon, which of course you find on his Twitter feed, which I believe is Bob's cartoons. Uh, we're not going to show that. We suggest that everybody goes and has a look at it. It's uh, it's uh, it will uh, give everybody. A bit of Christmas cheer, I think. Yes, yes. And, and a lot of observation is required, and maybe some of it is not for the faint-hearted. Um, right, I'll kick off. I think you should. Right, so I'm going to kick off. Uh, my key thing this year, as it was last year, actually, is uh, the government censorship network and the so-called censorship or disinformation uh, industrial complex. And we've shown this graphic. This is the graphic that I'm going to use to sort of uh, make the, the point here. Uh, just how the scale of government uh, surveillance uh, in order to uh, try to censor uh, people online is just getting off the charts. Uh, now, this, frankly, I've only included what six of the various bodies that the Cabinet Office has set up alongside the various. Uh, uh, intelligence agencies on the left there, that list could be two or three times the length that it is, but of course wouldn't fit on the graphic then. So so that's just to give an idea. Uh, we would like to encourage everybody to share this graphic as widely as possible. And in the bottom right-hand side there, you can see the, uh, the link to the censored page on the UK Column website, uh, which shows a timeline for how this has uh, built up over the last several years since more or less 2017 and before that David Cameron's speech to the United Nations General Assembly where he was talking about you know the need to regulate the internet this is about regulation of the internet it's about regulation of freedom of speech um, and uh, I'll just uh, I'm just going to put this on screen uh, because this was being tweeted out yesterday and Matt Canard saying yesterday anti-Zionist Jewish activist uh, Tony Greenstein was arrested at his home by British anti-terror police for a tweet and the tweets below, uh, police seized his phone and laptop and held him for nine hours. His electronics were not returned on his release. Now, uh, the tweet said, I support the Palestinians, uh, and that is enough, and I support Hamas against the Israeli army. Uh, now, uh, in, uh, if we're being accurate, we would have to say there that that would be a breach. Well, actually, Charles, let me ask you, that's a breach of which legislation? Well, it's an interesting one. I, th I think, in fact, I slightly misspoke earlier in that now having read the tweet, or at least the exchange, because there are two participants, it's possible that the the, ori the original message by James, in effectively encouraging the second uh, participant, Tony Greenstein, into declaring support for Hamas, that could be an offence under the Terrorism Act of 
2000. Um, I don't know if you want me to cover it now. I, I, as you know, I've got a couple of slides on this, which I could sort of go into now, or we can do that a bit later. But yes, I mean, um, it, the, the, the reason for arresting Tony Greenstein is, is very hard to get at, because just to declare support individually without encouraging anybody else is not an offence. Uh, and, and just to just to clarify this, it's because Hamas is now labelled as what's called a prescribed organisation. So it's an organisation written down by the government, of which there are 70-something, as engaged in terrorism, and therefore active support for them is effectively constitutes uh, an offence. And so yeah, clearly, with this is one of the problems with Twitter. You read a report like this and you're not absolutely sure how it's come about, but uh, it would appear likely that it's under terrorism legislation. And, it, and if it's not, then then frankly, what business have police meddling in um, in this person's life? But if for him to declare personally that he supports a terrorist group without articulating how he's doing, assuming that, that it can't be inferred from a tweet, and indeed it's not demonstrated by any further evidence that he's actually participating in any terrorist activities himself, there's nothing to it. So it's, I'm afraid it looks at face value, which clearly it's always hard to make that sort of a judgment because there will be a context. But yeah, it, it seems like there can't be anything to it because it, it, it would not constitute an offence, except for the first tweet by effectively trying to elicit support or encourage people to come out and support a terrorist organisation, or at least a prescribed organisation, is a different matter. Yes. Um, if I can add some cynicism, which I think is appropriate, as as you as you describe this little incident, uh, Charles, my mind goes back to a couple of years ago with Devon and Cornwall police warning the public in Devon and Cornwall and further afield that they had to be careful of ISIS taking over holiday destinations, holiday parks, for instance. We were to be very frightened that. Uh, if they embedded themselves in the local holiday parks, presumably the next step will be the world takeover. Well, that didn't happen. And uh, now, am I to believe that if we ban tweets about Hamas, that somehow they can't fun function on the battlefield? Is this a cunning plan by the British to debar them from Twitter so that they can't function on the battlefield? Or am I missing something here? No, it's not. It, it's, well, anyway, the point, the, yes, it, it, the whole situation is uh, a bit ridiculous. But uh, the point here is this is uh, the UK government deciding which organizations can and cannot be discussed yeah. uh, online. And uh, if you do discuss them uh, and you do it in the wrong kind of way, then you're going to have your door kicked in. Uh, this is the direction of travel at the moment. Uh, it's going to become much uh, more significant. Uh, and uh, well, when we look, start looking into, well, let's just talk about next year a little bit because the one piece of legislation, Charles is going to be talking about several pieces of legislation uh, in his segment, but the one piece of legislation that uh, is really grabbing, has grabbed my attention is this upgrade to the Investigatory Powers uh, Act. And of course, this isn't... Uh, new legislation going through. This is a statutory instrument uh, which is going to amend the Investigatory Powers Act. So, you know, what kind of parliamentary scrutiny is there going to be on this? Very little. Now, there has been a consultation, uh, but anyway, you know, this issue of data retention notices, uh, this is getting really significant and, and serious. Now, technical capability notices also requiring uh, operators of online services like uh, Signal uh, and WhatsApp and so on 
uh, to provide the UK government uh, with details of any technical uh, upgrades or technical capabilities that their software is going to use um, and uh, so on. And probably the, the national security notices, uh, the biggest problem requiring the telecommunications operator to take specified steps. Any specified steps, uh, such specified steps as the Secretary of State considers necessary. So again, no parliamentary scrutiny on this. It's just the Secretary of State decides uh, this is the, these are the steps that telecoms companies are going to have to uh, to follow, uh, and uh, this may include providing services or facilities. If we just put that up again for a second, uh, providing uh, services or facilities for the purposes of facilitating or assisting an intelligence service to carry out its functions. In other words, providing backdoors uh, for MI5, MI6, whoever else. Um, and uh, then this, uh, the Investigatory Parts Act also specifies that those persons in receipt of a notice or any person employed or engaged for the purposes of that person's business must not dis disclose the existence or contents of the notice to any other person without the per uh, permission of the Secretary of State. So uh, if Charles or I or Brian are the subject of uh, one of these notices uh, and that has been sent to the telecoms provider, uh, basically saying we want information about what person X is doing on your platform, then person X is not, uh, is not permitted to know uh, that such a notice has been given to the telecoms provider and therefore can't change their uh, behavior. So people uh, may feel that that is uh, an intrusion too far. I certainly do. Um, yeah. But, you know, this uh, absolute uh, infrastructure, this infrastructure has been built up, which we're calling the disinformation or censorship industrial complex, is now such a big thing. It's, there's so much money involved in it. Uh, that uh, uh, the opportunities for um, for uh, what's the word I'm looking for uh, for criticism of government activities uh, are going to shrink as the year goes on, unless people stand up to uh, be counted at this at this stage. It's too late once uh, once the IPA uh, legislation is in place and once the uh, Ofcom has finally released their. Uh, Procedures for what for for uh, how um, the online services are going to have to behave in the future. So that's what I want to mention. Yeah, serious stuff. Um, uh, go on. No, you go ahead. <laughs> well, we were, we was just going to say a little bit. For me, uh, really, the main thing that I followed in the background is the horrific war in Ukraine, and of course, we've seen. Um, the legacy media, especially our old friend, the dying, decaying BBC, just starting to abandon Ukraine when it was obvious the war wasn't going as the way the West and they, the BBC, wanted. But there's been something deeply unpleasant about that, that war, uh, not only the scale of the casualties, which I'll come on to, but also uh, the fact that we're now entering um, total battlefield surveillance and the use of drones, which means the men can be tracked and killed. They have no understanding that they're being watched from the sky. Um, I'm going to thank Debbie for this headline because it's uh, uh, Reuters here with the uh, headline, Ukraine to produce one million drones next year, Zelensky says. And if we just uh, uh, pop on to the next one here, this is the comment from the article. 
he's quoted as saying, regarding production, we will produce a million drones next year. We will make a million. We will do everything to make it so. I know that that's how it will be. Now, I've, quote, I've put there Zelensky final days in the bunker because it's very clear that the reality on the, on the battlefield is, is a breakdown, shortage of ammunition, lowering morale, um, deaths and decimation of the Ukrainian forces. Um, the reality is that this is absolutely the last days, but Zelensky, as the Fuhrer in the bunker, is still coming out with his dream weapons, which is supposedly going to turn the war around, and clearly they're not. Um, but what a horrible situation where we can now turn real war into what is ex essentially an extension of a, a video game. And of course, it's been the West, uh, in particular the US and the UK, that have, have kept Ukrainian fighting, and it's only with the financial support of the West that Ukraine is able to function at all because we are now paying for all of the critical salaries and the critical infrastructure in Ukraine because uh, its economic base has absolutely failed. Um, I would just uh, like to reverse the order of that. It's the UK and the US. Uh, and the reason I do that, because we should never forget uh, that it was Boris Johnson's intervention which kept this thing going in the first place, his personal intervention. Yeah, absolutely true, Mike. Um, where are we, you know, in, in this war? Well, this is the second headline, just the other one that I've chosen, which says it all. It's from the Kiev Independent Ukraine War latest. Military proposes to mobilize 450,000 to 500,000 new soldiers, Zelensky says. What does this headline tell us? Well, it tells us everything because we have to say what happened to the last 500,000 troops. And that is, in fact, two armies have completely disappeared on the, on the Ukrainian battlefield. Casualties on the Ukrainian side, horrific. Casualties on the Russian side, high. Um, but the reality is that uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of men have been thrown away and Zelensky's solution with the backing of the West is just to say, I need more men to feed into the meat grinder. But this time it's not men, it's elderly men. And now he's desperate to get young women in to certainly be slaughtered on the battlefield. So I find this war horrific. And what is equal, uh, even more horrific is the fact it could only continue uh, with the support of the West. So until we deal with our own governments, this horrific slaughter is going to go on. Um, 450 to 500,000 new soldiers, who's going to be training those? Uh, well, this is, uh, this is where there's all sorts of questions, Mike, because, of course, it's recognised that a lot of these are going to be elderly people, some of them even disabled, some of them um, still suffering from the effects of wounds. And the latest... Western reports I've seen are that the training bases in the UK and Germany, for example, uh, are now desperately short of Ukrainians to train. But if we're training, you know, a block of 20,000, it's going to take a long time to train 500,000. So I put this down as rhetoric from the bunker. Uh, the war is coming to an end. Russia is going to finish this war. And Zelensky is is, is increasingly out of reality, surrounded by the people who are only going to agree with him, unless, of course, there's a military coup. Uh, have, uh, has anybody any comments? 
know them? I think. Uh, well, I would only say on the, the, the just for the practical delivery of that, the, the you know the, the recruitment figures. I mean, just for a start, finding that many people is entirely unrealistic. But just to to set the scene or to imagine how it might work here, um, it would be typical for a battle group here to spend, say, six months in high-intensity pre-deployment training before going on an operational tour. So that, that's about a 1,000 people. And we're talking here about between 450 and 500,000 starting from scratch. So the logistical problem of delivering such a capability makes it completely and utterly unrealistic. Uh, and more than that, if therefore people are just handed a handed a rifle and a few bits of kit and told to get on with it, then um, then you know any government that's had any dealings with the Zelensky regime needs to step in and stop it straight away. Mm. Yeah, Mark. Ukraine recovery conference where you have the heads of state, uh, big corporate types, bankers, hedge funders, whatnot. Uh, we reported it a little. I want to report it more in the new year and how they're, you know, really kind of taking Ukraine apart at the seams uh, in terms of land, in terms of assets, in terms of determining its direction completely separated from what any Ukrainian people would think or feel. Uh, Ukraine is at war with itself. Uh, Zelensky is evidently a stooge for this cabal and uh, Ukraine is being attacked from within, uh, Russia could hardly do more to Ukraine than Ukraine's own leadership is doing to it. Yeah, indeed. Okay. Yeah, but I just add, what I've lost slightly lost track of the days. We're either at 666 days of fighting or just past it. And uh, the carnage goes on, but the Russians are going to finish this because that's their declared aim. What happens to Ukraine as a state, I think, is going to be very interesting. It's increasingly looking like it's going to be split up, a pie divided be, uh, between all those with an interest. Yes. Okay, Charles, uh, let's move on to you. What have you? I appreciate that I I kind of blew your initial slide here, but what's what's your what's your look back at twenty twenty three? Yeah, that's fine. Actually, I'll tell you what. Let's come back to that slide in a second. Um, I, I will I will come to that. But I think my analysis of the year, and you're right to to lead me in by talking about legislation because I think that's where I will go with this. Uh, partly because it's an area that I have an interest in, but it's because I see it as being the fruit being born of the emergency created very much willfully in India. And I know that that kind of what's been happening in 2021, 2022, but I think 2023 has delivered more in that sense than perhaps previously. And I'll just explain why I think that. First of all, I think there's been... Uh, a sort of a stepping back from the brink from a lot of people who were dissenting voices from 2020, but have been made to feel a bit more comfortable now, perhaps not financially, but certainly in terms of the uh, restrictive pressures that have been placed upon people in so many areas of their lives. And I think there's not been the pressure on um, organisations of all sorts that there was perhaps even last year. So I think that's, that's, that's enabled a little bit more freedom of 
manoeuvre. And then the other thing I would say is that if we chart the way in which legislation is being passed and indeed policy is being generated, then I think that gives a, a good indicator of what's been going on. So just by way of comparison, and I know the statistics, as always, can be interpreted in a number of ways, and there are other ways to explain this, but but parliamentary traffic and what's generated in terms of acts, um, substantive general acts of parliament, has been a significant increase this year. So in the years preceding 2020, it was approximately sort of 35 or fewer acts of parliament going all the way through. 2020 dipped a little bit, 2021 um, up slightly. 2022, last year, 50 Acts of Parliament were passed. And so far this year, or well, this year, uh, 56 Acts of Parliament have gone through. Now, of course, a number of those will deal with things that uh, may or may not be of great significance to the freedoms that we hope we would enjoy. And Brian might be right, of course, or at least Devon Cornwall Police may have been, because a number of them do deal with caravans and caravan parks. But the ones that don't are significant. And so to to think about it in, in terms of a timeline and certainly issues that were not reported on at all in the mainstream media are things that might seem trivial but aren't. And I would go back to January with the revision of what's called PACE Code A Alpha, which is the one of the codes of practice by which police are supposed to operate under the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984. And in particular, that came from legislation passed in 2022, which gave rise to what's called the Serious Violence Reduction Order, which I did actually speak about earlier in the week. But if you missed that, there's an article on the UK Column website about it, SVRO, and it's to do with searching people without suspicion, which has just come up again because of the super complaint about Section 60, which gives an inspector the authorization to put a, a sort of blanket provision on a geographic area over a fixed period of time where people may be searched without suspicion. So what I'm driving at really is that whilst activity across society probably hasn't really changed that much, there's been a reframing via legislation to suggest that more bad things are happening and, and they need to be legislated against. And the the ground effectively, or the goalposts at least, are being moved. And there, there are some very prominent examples of that. One of them, and again, to do with sort of policing powers, would be the Public Order Act 2023, which we, UK Columns covered considerably over the course of the year. So I'd urge you to sort of go back through the the, the archives on, on that. But it, it, when I say reframing and, and moving the goalposts, it's things like introducing words such as nuisance and annoyance, bringing them into the sphere of factors that may constitute an offence. And I would say that that is a, a preposterous position to put uh, police in or indeed put the public in to think that people could be reporting other people for criminal offences because they're causing annoyance or, or nuisance. And of course, we look forward with that to the criminal justice bill, which is going through now, and again, refers to the same things, nuisance and annoyance. So essentially, behaviour remains similar, but the threshold is changed. And again, another one that we point to is the, the Online Safety Act, which again has been reported on a lot by UK Column. But in a sense, it's it's the same thing. We obviously the the harmful but legal hurdle was sort of 
scuffed on the way over being cleared. But but it's it's that sort of suggestion that behaviour that until recently was perfectly acceptable is now no longer acceptable, and it will be legislated against. Such such is the the volume of this sort of legislation. Of course, the Energy Act being another one. So in a sense, we're now being railroaded with with very little choice in the matter towards net zero. And again, this is something that's been covered at great length as the the UK uh, Innovation Bank Act, um, again, to set up projects which are delivering public money to be spent in areas that, that again, are questionable. So the result of the legislation that has gone through, or at least the reason that it's been able to go through so easily and swiftly is, I would say, because of the sequencing of dissenting voices. Mike's talked a lot about censorship and his slides at the start of this show are very illustrative of the complex web of organisations and policies and, and things that are in place to, to, to censor voices. But that, that happens in the parliamentary chambers as well. I mean, there, there, is, there is virtually no opposition. There is also no way really in which people can engage with their constituency MPs. And the result of all this on the on the sort of delivery of the legislation, in effect, the criminalising of activities that were not previously subject to such sanction is is really, really changing the ground beneath our feet. So I think now to illustrate what I mean would be a good time to bring that slide on screen. Uh, I don't want to go over the same ground that Mike covered, but the, the point with it is that exactly like he says, the government will decide due to pressures that come from we may not know where to reframe or to, or to change exactly what it is that we are to think about a given topic. So if we click on one, we will see that Hamas was only listed as a prescribed organisation two years ago. If you click on one, a little red box will appear over the date. And it is somewhat absurd. I mean, OK, the, the, this particular Twitter uh, arrest may come to nothing, certainly should come to nothing, because, of course, my reading of the Terrorism Act is that uh, that doesn't constitute an offence. But nonetheless, the point is that had this been written two years ago, obviously there are reasons for it having come out now due to the situation in the Middle East currently. But if you had written uh, a message that was on a public communications network just over two years ago, there would be no consequence. And yet now there is. And, and the material change is limited, frankly. So we'll look at exactly what the Terrorism Act says about uh, the act of terrorism. And I think this is an interesting one. I started by talking about 2020 and the emergency and essentially by creating a heightened level of fear and panic in people and then stepping back from that and suggesting that actually things aren't all that bad. You, you, you create a full sense of security and you allow people to relax into thinking that just because things aren't that bad anymore, that there no longer is a problem. So if we just advance one to the definition of terrorism, I think it's interesting to note when you consider the way in which the government of the United Kingdom behaved in 2020, if we go on uh, one, we'll, we'll just underline a little bit of text there. So 
it out if you're if you're not viewing or if it's a bit small on the screen. But the interpretation of terrorism from the Terrorism Act 2000, in this act, terrorism means the use or threat of action where the use or threat is designed to either influence the government or to intimidate the public or a section of the public. I can think of numerous times that that was done in 2020 by the government. And if we click on one, action falls within this subsection if it endangers a person's life other than that of the person committing the action. Well, there were, again, were plenty of measures taken by the government and by all sorts of agencies whilst instructed to by the government that could have been argued to have endangered a person's life. And if we click on to the last one, we'll see uh, that also um, an act of terrorism is constituted if it creates a serious risk to the health or safety of the public or a section of the public. Given the controversy and the debate, well, I would say debate, but but obviously not actually debate, unfortunately, but the, the apparent damage that has been done by the pharmaceutical products introduced into the United Kingdom en masse at the end of 2020, it is very hard when you look at the Terrorism Act like that and you compare, you compare the behaviour of the government from that period onwards to conclude anything other than, than their, the, those activities specifically to fall within the definition of terrorism. So I don't want to paint a, a, an overall completely gloomy picture of 2023. I think, there are, I think there are positives that will come out of it, which I'll go on to in a, in a, in a later segment. But, but as I say, my, my, my overall feeling on the year is that it's been one that has been a year of effectively sort of enablement by what has happened. The ground that's been prepared over the last three years has allowed the legislators in particular to create offences, to create legislation, not necessarily criminal legislation or legislation that pertains to criminal offences, and indeed to reinforce that with powers to police, powers to regulators, and sustained pressure on corporations to police the people that they deal with, and indeed to uh, affect a culture within society where we're policing each other. A little bit, again, like happened in 2020 when the government would make a suggestion about a particular measure. And before you knew it, people had seized that and gold-plated it. So that's my that, that's my feeling on on the, the sort of the big uh, undertow of, of this year, I suppose. I mean, Charles, you know, what, this is all extremely important, but I think the thing that really struck me about the legislation that's come out, not just in 2023, but even 2022, 2021, um, is that a lot of it has been, as you used the word enabling, uh, they have been enabling acts in the sense that um, they have included clauses which say that the Secretary of State of whichever government department can do all kinds of things to his own satisfaction at some point in the future through secondary legislation or through the use or, or and through the use of terms which remain relatively undefined. In other words, there's so much breadth and potential scope in this that that's only ever going to uh, fall out through the, the use of uh, the courts. Uh, and now that the courts are uh, you know, increasingly under the control of the executive, um, it, the, mm -hmm. this, this aspect of it is, is where I see the danger aside from the, the, just the sheer scale of the, the amount of legislation has gone through. That particular aspect of yeah. it, I think, is something we really need to focus on. 
Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I, I think that's that's very true. I mean, that, that those clauses such as that about the, the minister having, in effect, being able to to do what they like, notwithstanding what's actually written out in the document, is um, it, it is something that, that characterises a lot of legislation. In actual fact, the, a point I had meant to make, which I which I omitted to, was that this period now I think we're going through is is not dissimilar to that in the sort of mid to late 1980s, where th- you know to to pick out two obvious examples, the Public Health Act 1984 and the Public Order Act 1986 which have exactly such provisions in them. So off the back of that, a minister or indeed, well, the minister responsible for that particular department may change or indeed a statutory instrument may may go on the back of it at any point. And um, it, it, the Public Health Act still, if you, if you read it uh, end to end, which uh, it would take quite a long time, but there are some specific bits that do jump out at one, and it might sound odd to say this, but but so far, we have been very lucky that it hasn't been implemented in the way that it might well have been, especially in 2020. Yes. Yes. OK, uh, Debbie, let's move on to you. And uh, what's your thoughts on 2023? Actually, um, it was uh, it was a, a great, a great little segue there because I, I had a choice. So we know that the NHS has collapsed and uh, you know, that I've been covering the NHS and all things medicine um, for a very long time. But if it comes down to one thing and you ask me to choose one thing. So without further ado, it's Merry Christmas from the MHRA. So there's their Christmas card, season's greetings, all good wishes for the festive season, the new year ahead. And I just thought just to remind people of our do no harm T-shirt MHRA. And let's not forget that if you scramble MHRA, it spells harm. And looking back on the year, we have, I mean, I have to say, you know, as my little tokenistic gesture for Christmas, my stars are for, they're for all, everybody that has clicked into the MHRA board meeting in the UK column um, audience. We have kept our foot on the accelerator with the MHRA right from the get-go. And I know that a lot of other news channels have covered the MHRA, but we, I'd like to think that we have kept our eye on the ball. And I've been to every single MHRA board meeting. And so what I want to say is we've done a brilliant job because things have changed. And their agenda, part of their agenda for 2024, is to rebuild trust because they obviously feel that they've lost our trust because we don't trust them. They enable the NHS, the NHS enable them. So we've, as a result of this year, um, Cheryl Granger, who's been absolutely incredible setting up the Situation Room with Mike, uh, with Mike Robinson, and that can be found on the front page of the website. And this is a completely unique, exclusive link, if you like, to the Pfizer and Moderna analysis papers and all that's coming out in the USA. So you remember we had the, you very kindly, Mike, put the yellow card site up, which we found incredibly useful until the MHRA stopped publishing their data. And now we've got the situation room, which is a a huge bonus. And we've had a change of chair at the MHRA. Stephen Lightfoot's gone. And here we go with Professor Graham Cook. Uh, We're not allowed to film the MHRA board meetings now. We're not allowed to take screenshots. We have to be careful what we say in the chat box. We have to be kind. Um, The whole 
MHRA board meeting format has completely changed and it's all eyes still on them. We cannot afford to take our foot off the accelerator. So coming up for 2024, I'm looking at antimicrobial resistance as being very high up on the radar. They've already named it as a major global threat. Uh, the MHRA are going to be bringing out a science strategy in 2024, so I can't wait to see what that's all about. But we must remember that they're going to be streamlining and accelerating clinical trials. This is ongoing. mRNA is going to carry on pouring down the pipeline. Vaccines are going to carry on pouring down the pipeline. None of this is going away anytime soon. And and I really do believe that if people can just click into the board meeting, you don't have to watch all of it, just record your view. They need to know that we're watching them because the MHRA are essentially um, an agent of the state and an agent of Bill Gates. The, the amount of conflicts of interest and the revolving doors, and we've exposed all of those on UK Column. So we just have to keep up the pressure because there's more coming down the pipeline and we need to be aware of it. And um, one last thing on the MHRA, I think, um, is if anybody is looking at the fear-mongering for this JN1 variant, and I say variant in inverted commas, um, it might have an impact on those that have been fully vaccinated, and I include those that have been boosted perhaps in care homes. So we could be seeing an ongoing impact from JN1. So watch out on the MHRA and the UK HSA website for that because they're both interlinked and intertwined. But I'm watching Dame June Rain. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Now, let's uh, before we come on to, to Mark and Ben, uh, let's just uh, do a couple of ads. Um, so first of all, um, anybody that didn't see the interview that I did with Graham Linehan, uh, that went out at 1 p.m. yesterday. Um, it's on the UK Column website now. So Graham Lennon, of course, uh, writer of Father Ted and the IT uh, um, crowd. Uh, sorry, my brain is not Series. working today, so I do apologise for this. And the IT crowd, uh, anybody that uh, uh, recognises him from that, he spoke out on trans issues, of course, and uh, his career has effectively uh, been ended as a result of that. Uh, do watch that interview. It's extremely interesting. Uh, now, uh, Brian, uh, over the Christmas break, uh, some audio interviews are going out. Yes, we th we thought that our, uh, our subscribers, our membership deserves some uh, audience, so, uh, some some uh, content. So uh, four days, we've got the 27th and the 28th of December at one o'clock and the first and second of the new year at one o'clock. Uh, we've got a series of interviews. It's called Gutsy Women, uh, where I'm talking to women who've clearly got the guts to stand up and put their head above the parapet. Um, there's a number of different ladies, most of them well known to the UK column, but I've had such a good response from the people themselves that I think I'll be continuing the series. But this is me saying, how is it that in uh, 2023, it's taken the women to stand up and be counted. And uh, Kim Isherwood, tiny lady, um, she, she was one of the ones that caught my attention as somebody who was doing huge amount of work from a very tiny frame. So we're saying, well done, the women. We're also saying, where are the men? But maybe we'll move on to them in due course. Right. So just to correct you, uh, Kim, Kimberly Isherwood will be going out on the 27th. 
Uh, Lou Collins will be going out on the 20th. Sorry, yeah. Sorry. De uh, Debbie will be going out on the 29th. Uh, then we've got Vanessa Bailey on the 1st and Eva Bartlett on the 2nd. Yes, I only gave four days there and it's actually five five interviews and the aim of the interview is actually to learn a little bit about the person themselves and about the work that they've been doing to stand up and I I think I think the audience will enjoy them I enjoyed the interviews and so those will be going out at 1 p.m in the usual places uh, on those days so uh, keep an eye on the UK Colour website uh, it'll of course be in the banner at the top um, uh, Debbie uh, your blog is up Yes, it is indeed the last one for this year, and I'll be making lots of predictions in my first one for 2024. But in this one, we've heard that cows, methane, masks, well, now it's humans, uh, human emissions. So basically, they're saying breathing is bad for the environment. This is all based on a study. This isn't some random headline. These are, these are studies that are going out, crazy headlines. And uh, if you're thinking about coming down to the Southwest for Christmas, you might get more than you bargained for because we have more sewage spills on over 20 beaches. So it's not terribly pleasant. Uh, but if you want to book a jab, it's as easy as booking a cab. That's the NHS's latest tagline. OK, and uh, on the 7th of uh, January then at uh, 6 p.m., uh, save, save the date, please, because, uh, again, in the usual places, ukcold.org slash live and other places, uh, we're hosting Piers Robinson, Richard Falk, uh, Tief Kabersi, uh, Kevin Ryan, Aaron Good, and Vanessa Bailey for an event entitled Genocide and Empire, examining October the 7th and the geopolitics of the war on Palestine. So that's on Sunday the 7th of January, four months since the beginning of the conflict in the Middle East. Uh, and just to, to give you an idea, uh, Richard Falk, uh, who you'll have met on the, uh, nine, the recent 9-11 event uh, is uh, a former United Nations Human Rights Rapporteur on the Occupied Territories. Uh, Azif, uh, uh, sorry, Atif uh, Kabersi is Emeritus Professor of Economics at McMaster University in Canada. Uh, Kevin Ryan is uh, a, member, a board member of IC911 who is going to be running this event. We'll be live streaming it on their behalf. Uh, Dr. Aaron Good is a PhD in political science from Temple University. Uh, and, well, Vanessa Bailey, everybody knows. Uh, Vanessa, by the way, was hoping to be with us today. Uh, she's uh, not feeling up to it. Uh, but uh, just to give you an idea of uh, her view of 2024, uh, it comes in the form of a single word, escalation. And I think uh, that's probably uh, correct. Um, so uh, a quick advertisement here for Andrew Bridgen, who's once again bringing the issue of excess mortality into the uh, uh, into Parliament. So I'm pleased that the Commons uh, uh, have uh, granted me a debate on trends in excess deaths on the 16th of January at 9.30am, he says. Um, so please write to your MP and ask them to attend the Westminster Hall debate. Um, so Westminster Hall, these debates often have almost nobody at them. Uh, it would be really great to see a lot of pressure placed on MPs over the Christmas period uh, to get them to attend that on the 16th of January. And I think Cheryl's going to attend that as well. So we're hoping to get some direct feedback on that for the UK column. OK. Uh, well, a couple of uh, quick emails here. The first one uh, was just fascinating. Uh, just read it very quickly. In your news on the 11th of December, you featured an email from Robert Green dating from 2018, wondering if the government whips still use blackmail. You may already be aware of the Have I Got News For You clip featuring MP Johnny Mercer, 
where he openly admits that they do. And I've gone and had a look at the YouTube clip, and in it, yes, Johnny Mercer is very kind because on camera he is happy to say um, that basically this is the way the system uh, works in Westminster, people being uh, pressurized and effectively blackmailed in order to get them to do what the party wants and not necessarily what's best for their constituents. And I'll just bring up this one, uh, which I liked a lot, an email from Mr. K who says, wow, thank you, just bought your cap after seeing it on the desk of someone talking, but winter is here and I'm loving spreading the word with your woolly hat. I'll now be joining you shortly so I can watch the extra bit. Thanks again and keep up the good work. So thank you, Mr. K, very, very much for supporting us. And we hope you have lots of fun in your woolly hat. Uh, Mark, let's come to you. What's uh, been the main issue of 2023 for you? Uh, based on importance to the public, Mike, I'd have to say in the World Pandemic Treaty, and certainly I'm not the only UK column contributor on that issue, but it's one of those um, evolutionary issues that is at once at the same time evolutionary and, and uh, kind of moves like a glacier. But at the same time, there's a lot of breaking news along the way, and it's very, very urgent. And as we know, it's getting more and more urgent as they shoot for that May 2024 uh, uh, completion of the pandemic treaty and the accompanying international health regulations. I mean, I could talk about important game changers like the Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates that I've covered, the U.S. southern border and, and some of the wider implications of that and tying that into migration in Europe and the U.K. These are all important. Global cities, another kind of evolutionary issue. But the pandemic treaty would have to stand out because of the sheer impact that can and probably will have. Uh, once they hopefully don't complete it, if I may use a twist in, in my narrative there. So that's something to keep a very close eye on. Um, I'll have a lot more on that, of course, um, hitting the ground running when I come back on the column around January 8th. So that's what really sticks out in my mind. Uh, one little um, other miscellaneous thing I'll mention is that we've talked about the media all the time on, on UK column because it always plays into all the issues we cover. And we've talked about how local media is diminishing, leaving the big monopolists uh, more or less unscathed. But we, t we hear about news deserts where in, in your neck of the woods and my neck of the woods, there's supposedly, supposedly this dearth of news where um, local newspapers and smaller outlets are disappearing and creating these news deserts. And oh no, the public's being deprived of the mass media cartel's narrative. What are we gonna do? Well, what I found out just a couple of days ago was the civil news service, uh, for example, in the States has spawned something called Chalkbeat and Votebeat. And what they're doing is they're bringing in billionaires and others uh, who are funding um, entities, nonprofit entities who are then funding news entities to fill this gap. So the empire strikes back, you might say, the the corporatocracy is trying to create a new breed of news agencies to fill these news deserts, to fill that gap, because in my estimation, they know the UK columns of the world are nipping at their heels. And that's going to that's gonna include reporting on the pandemic treaty, include the, the new variants of Omicron that they say are coming out uh, under the COVID banner, and all the issues we touch. So um, 
I would put the pandemic treaty and, and all that that includes at the top, but um, this media uh, reboot that they're doing is going to be right alongside that. So that would be my contribution. Uh, I think it's really interesting, Mark, what you say about uh, the the, the way the funding streams work, because this is something that we see uh, more and more often as uh, people receiving money from what appears to be agency A, but in fact, that money has originated with maybe the foreign office or or from some other agency, and it's effectively been laundered through uh, some kind of tax-exempt foundation in the meantime. Uh, which g- gives a, a degree of separation between the, the source of the money and the recipient. Uh, and then it's very, very hard to, to work out exactly who is providing the funds for a particular policy. You know, let me add something. I used to work for the South Bend, Indiana Tribune near Notre Dame in my conventional media days. And I looked up how the Tribune is doing now. They moved out of their beautiful building I used to work in. And I looked at who was financing them. And there was a another entity and behind them was another entity. And by the time you followed it, it led to, I believe it's called SoftBank in Japan, run by a single billionaire. So a local newspaper, conventional as they come, really no good at all anymore, unfortunately, it used to be. This this conventional paper that you wouldn't suspect anything like that, you think, oh, it's all supported by the local advertisers, it's supported by the, the subscribers themselves. Well, no, it, it goes to this one entity, I don't remember all the names, and then another one, and eventually it's owned by, I think it's called SoftBank, may light, lightning strike me if I got that wrong, but that's run by this Japanese billionaire who, who looks kind of like the kind of guy <laughs> that tortures cats for a living or something. I, I'm being a little humorous, but uh, so if a conventional paper like that can be owned in such a surreptitious way, imagine what we're dealing with now when you've got these um, new news entities popping out of the woodwork to fill this gap that we're trying to fill. So uh, we need to keep a really close eye on this because they're going to try and change the narrative or maintain the narrative in all the key are- key areas that we cover. Uh, if I just add a little bit to that, and of course we've we've had this problem locally where a couple of very very local newspapers um, in the in South Ham's area of Devon, that's down to the southwest of England where we we live. But uh, some what appear to be local papers have made some scurrilous accusations against the UK column. And uh, people think these are local papers, but indeed they're part of a 200 title uh, overseeing company. And this is happening more and more. Is Is there any local news within legacy media, as it were? I think we could say no. no. Okay, Ben, at last, let's uh, move on to you. And uh, I think you have a particularly offensive uh, (laughs) final segment uh, for us here. To that, you guys have touched on some amazingly interesting stuff that um, I'm not going to respond to all of it. But um, to confirm to you, Mark, and I'm glad that you brought that up because I remember you talking about that uh, a month or so ago. Um, the, 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 the ownership of uh, local U.S. newspapers running back to Masasan, Masasan in, in Tokyo, who's the guy that founded SoftBank, and he launched the Vision Fund with a whole load of Saudi sovereign wealth money, uh, as well as a bunch of other money, uh, about, gosh, probably six years ago now. 
And that fund has been right at the forefront of a lot of what's been going on in, in, in high tech innovation, particularly they've got big stakes in WeWork and Uber and Airbnb. So that whole paradigm of global digital corporate, he's right at the center of it. And I remember you mentioning that because there's absolutely no good reason for him to be participating in that fashion in local news, right? That's, that, that, that's bad for everybody. Um, and Perfect. fixing the news is, is, is a really important part of, of what needs to happen. And, and a big part of that is, is, is getting our audience to understand that actually it's something that you need to pay for and, and, and invest in. Otherwise, you know, as they say, if it's free, you are the product. And that's ultimately what, what's happened there. Um, so there's so much to talk about. Uh, I, I'll, I'll hone in on one individual who, for me, has been front and centre this year. It's, it's Tony Blair. I'm really sorry to bring that name into your living rooms on a, on a Friday afternoon just before Christmas, um, but he has been extraordinarily high profile for a long time, right? It's, this is not a new uh, a new smell that we can't get rid of. This is an old smell that we can't get rid of. Uh, and actually, the smell seems to be getting worse because he is operating uh, like a self-appointed chairman type figure for the whole of humanity. Maybe he's the chief of staff for... King Charles and his imperial ambitions. Maybe that's a good way to think about Tony Blair. Um, he, he's always had this uh, high profile ever since he, he stepped onto the political stage, since he left politics. He's been grossly enriching himself uh, with money from dictators and global corporations. Uh, he has um, said that he would do the Iraq war all over again even in light of all the information that he now has available that apparently he didn't before he made the decision to go to war, kill a million people, essentially. Uh, he was the lead out guy for the Build Back Better narrative uh, that the World Economic Forum was pushing through through COVID. In fact, he's being positioned as a potential future leader of the World Economic Forum, and he's absolutely front and centre in every single part of um, British politics, um, essentially setting out the strategic vision, the policy vision that Starmer has has, has, has 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 been given the job of trying to sell to the public. That's absolutely Blair's creation, or certainly he's fronting it up at the at, at the, the geopolitical level, if we could put it like that. And it it touches on every single area of, of your life. And your and your children's lives, your family's lives. Um, he's been extraordinarily busy. He's been uh, issuing policy papers in every area that you can possibly imagine, particularly around things like the health system, education, and actually, you know, as a, as a continuum, I've talked about him as the, being like one of the the, the key players of 2023. Uh, he's absolutely going to um, uh, maintain and probably even increase his profile as, as we move, as we look forward to next year. This just hit my inbox last night. Uh, this is a bit of a recut of, of, of what was sent to me. Uh, but you can see here 10 policy priorities for the UK in 2024. Number one, health investment is finally addressed. And I will just dwell on this one a little bit because if we can flick forward, you can see what that actually means. So he talks about um, a focus on wellness and prevention, which is, you know, how we should be approaching public health, right? Stop people getting ill rather than treating them once they've become ill. But the way that they're promoting doing that is not just through a push on diet, exercise and alcohol, but also a radical embrace of adult vaccination, a radical embrace of adult 
vaccination, all justified by a new appreciation of the value of, the, of a healthier population to the economy and to the nation. So they've obviously built some kind of econometric model to sit behind this to convince everyone that, that, that we've got to dose up here. Right. And that is the big push. And, um, you know, we tried a radical embrace of adult vaccination. Uh, this is what it delivered to us. Uh, I've shown this a, a, a bunch recently. I think this is just one of the most striking visuals that I've come across this year. All, all respect to Heart Group for putting this together. And, and essentially, uh, the, the, the timeline goes from the top to the bottom. So the, the, the start is at the top and the more recent months, this goes up to July this year. This is a monthly timeline uh, that, that talks about excess deaths. And you can see where it gets where it gets red and dark red and black. That's really bad. And that is a direct correlation to the COVID vaccination program, which is it's come from the, the exact same branch of science uh, that, that, that this new vaccination program that is being promoted comes from. It's RNA technologies uh, and uh, they are doubling down, trebling down on this and, and pushing this out into into society. And that really, you know, just, just gives you, I think, just a case in point uh, assessment of uh, of. Of, of what's of, of what sits behind Blair's policies, no matter how um, altruistically they are positioned to us. If we could just jump back to the first slide, actually, if that's possible, um, I'll just touch on uh, just these other ones very briefly because I think it's important just to just to explain what what he's talking about. And, and if you want to if you want to understand what global is from is has got on its roadmap for 2024, go and I'll, I'll share this. We'll put a link to it somewhere. I'm sure it's on the Global Institute website. There is a huge amount of very specific detail sitting behind each of these different sections, including policy papers, NHS documents, the works. Essentially, this is uh, they're using the UK as, 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 a, as, a, as a lab, essentially, for how um, they can most effectively uh, test and implement uh, their policies. Uh, you can see here in the second section that disruption is going to come to higher education. So Gen Z in particular being very heavily propagandized, very heavily targeted, G'd up as a, some kind of great next greatest generation, right? So in the great battle against climate change and inequity and all that kind of stuff, they're really um, uh, playing to uh, uh, the egos of, of, of Gen Z and saying, you're here to fix this, people, right? Let, let, let's get on the case and here's all the policies that you need to line up behind. Uh, social media uh, is discussed as a public health issue. That basically, that means they want to regulate it more, uh, much more tightly. Net zero targets get real. They want uh, a lot of money from us. Uh, we talked about that a lot with COP over the past few weeks. Uh, policymakers maintain momentum on artificial intelligence, even if public interest dips. Very, very important wording there in the headline. Even if people begin to realize that AI is going to destroy most white and blue collar jobs, which Blair has told us that it is when he was speaking recently at Chatham House, we've got to go ahead with it anyway, even if the public starts saying that they don't want it. Right. Um, they're, they're really pushing this. Uh, think hard about the size and the, the role of the state is number is point number six. Uh, a lot of that is about funding. Uh, they want a serious investment in Anglo-Irish relations. That's very interesting to me, particularly given the way that we've seen things going in Ireland over the over the past few weeks. Uh, we got a new deal on immigration, which is basically selling it to the population and saying, well, you know, the, the corporations demanded it and they're continuing to demand it. So you've got to put up with it. That's what I read into that. 
public services to start to serve the people, which is very much about digital identity and, and, and creating a, a single ID for your ability to access the system. Uh, before we get into tackling the really, really difficult issues, which interestingly was all about increasing council tax uh, and also how do we circumvent planning legislation to roll out our um, new energy infrastructure and a whole bunch of other things. So there is a packed agenda as we roll into 2024. They've got a whole bunch of things that they want to do uh, with us, to us, at our expense, remember, because all of this is state-led. Um, and I'm uh, personally fascinated to see how far along this uh, track we get before the wheels come off and the whole thing falls apart. So anyway, oh yeah, by the way, I have one more slide. Uh, let's <laughs> chuck you and Blair into the mix. This is this is a really neat uh, 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 case in point exemplar of uh, what what constitutes economic activity in 2023. Apparently, you and Blair is personally worth 400 million quid based on the the money that was put into his his startup, which has lost tens of millions. It lost 40 million quid last year. But apparently, based on the private valuation that was used in its last funding round, he is actually worth 400 million quid. You do the maths on that. It doesn't make any sense. But this is the world we're living in. Yes, quite incredible. Several several people have said they're a little, little bit depressed at what's coming through the pipeline. So I hope that last bit on the demise of you and Blair has cheered people up again, <laughs> up a bit. It, sh it should have. Um, uh, yes, I'm just going to uh, say that, uh, you know, coming back to Bob Moran's cartoon earlier on, he had it absolutely spot on. The only thing he didn't, I noticed he didn't have was Keir Starmer in there. At least I couldn't. I didn't spot <laughs> Keir Starmer in there. He did have Tony Blair in there. Tony Blair's... Well, based on the, the the other, the rest of the composition, uh, Tony Blair's hand may have been in an inappropriate place if Keir Starmer had been included. But, but or he could have been pushing them under the surface of the pool of bath of blood that they were in. But you've got to see the cartoon. Yes, uh, right, <laughs> Debbie. Let's come back to you and a, and a look into the future from you. Yeah, I'm afraid it's not a terribly um, happy prediction because. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at the, the Red Sea and we're seeing, I've been warning on my blog for quite a while, that uh, we could be seeing severe disruption of um, everything in our, in our chain, distribution chain pretty much, food, um, chips, especially microchips, um, and oil. And I've been looking at the Red Sea because there's, as we know, that the news, Vanessa's been reporting on what's been going on in the Red Sea. But of course, that affects the Suez Canal. So we've now got containers, big container companies that are having to divert right the way around the Horn of Africa, going thousands of miles out of their way. So I've been saying to, I mean, you know, this is going to impact pretty much everyone because there's another there's another little pinch point in the Mediterranean around Libya as well, which could also just exacerbate already um, big problems that we've got coming down the line. So what I'm really saying to everybody is that 2024, I think, is do you have a plan? You know, you, you need to start making a plan for what if the grid goes down? What if um, we don't get um, oil? Because oil prices will really escalate. And I've been tracking the marine um, the marine shipping. And I just, just show you this as a little example, because I've only been able to snapshot a little bit of it because you have to zoom right in. So we're just off the coast of China here. And what you'll see there in the marine tracking is in green are the container ships and in red are the oil tankers. 
Now, what you might find interesting is when you zoom right in is those gray ones that you see, like thousands of them, these have all been like decommissioned and they're all moored now. So they're not actually in use. And we're beginning to see a huge car park, if you like, in the sea all around China and, and the east of container ships that literally aren't going anywhere. And if you go in and look at the UK in particular, you can see that at the different ports, how many containers are in. And we don't have many in at the moment and there aren't many coming in. So if you haven't made a plan, if you haven't stocked up on candles and um, maybe camping lights and some woolly socks, except the time to do it. Um, and then um, I just wanted to to be a slightly ahead of the curve, because as soon as we come back um, after Christmas and the new year, uh, Davos starts rolling out again. So I thought this was a little bit of hope, actually. I think we must be making a big impact because the World Economic Forum, who are meeting between the 15th and 19th of January at Davos, their big one agenda. I mean, they've got plenty of them, AI uh, and, and everything else. Security, cybersecurity is a big one. But it seems to be rebuilding trust that is headlining. And I'm seeing that everywhere. I'm seeing rebuilding trust in the NHS, rebuilding trust in the MHRA, rebuilding trust with the World Economic Forum. So we're definitely making an impact. Oh, yes. And um, for trust, how they go on trust, how they judge trust is two sources. But one of them is the Edelman Trust Barometer. So if nobody knows about the Edelman Trust Barometer, do go and have a look because it's likely that wherever you are in the world, there will be a supplement report for your country. I've just um, brought out the UK supplement report, but when you go into it and look at it, you can see that the UK public pretty much have no trust in politicians, no trust in the media, no trust in the government, no trust in NGOs. Um, and that is pretty much global wide as well. Okay, thank you, Debbie. Uh, who's uh, who was uh, talking about or wanting to talk about? Uh, who's to blame? Yes, who's to blame for bringing Blair back into this again? It was ben. me. <laughs> oh no! It was me because I I got the same email as Ben had got. Oh, I and, see. Uh, ben and I have sat through hours and hours and hours of listening to Tony Blair and his cronies at the conferences. So we've been exchanging notes and I got the email too. And this is just reimagining government for the 21st century. Everything that Ben has said is absolutely spot on because clearly, you know, you, and, and I have to say, build back better, just, just so that you know, that came originally from the, the now King Charles. But in 2019, Charles wrote the sentence, build back better, in a letter to the Dominican Republic when they'd had a disaster. And he said, um, I am, I'm, I'm delighted that you will be able to. And he put it in inverted commas on a, a letter from Clarence House, Build Back Better. So what you said about Tony Blair and King Charles. And I mean, we know that Tony Blair, was it this special, um, his knights, he's Royal Knight of the Garter, isn't he? But he's an elevated one, I think. I think he's a knight of the satin. There's a famous song that's after it. him. Yeah, that's it. So pretty much Ben is absolutely right. They, I think you might have swallowed that one. Yeah. <laughs> I was Gordon joking. Brown on the other side. <laughs> I was joking, Debbie. 
What's he doing with his hands in that photo? Uh, well, I, I, I must say I was distracted by that. He was, he's highlighting <laughs> something. He's highlighting, he's highlighting something that uh, features in Bob Moran's uh, cartoon. <laughs> Uh, can I just say that he's actually addressed that very subject, his sausage fingers. So if anybody's oh, we're interested... We're talking about King this, Charles again. <laughs> yeah, we just are. Yeah, we're talking about his sausage fingers. There's a documentary coming out on Boxing Day uh, at, at about six o'clock in the evening, I think, on a behind the, the wall, a fly on the wall kind of what happened at the coronation and in the rehearsals. And he actually talks about his sausage fingers there. So he's obviously heard us. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Well, well look, uh, let me just, let's just uh, finish by asking everybody, have you got any, any other comments, any other thoughts for next year? Anything else you want to you say? Well, I've been watching the comments in the box and it's, it's clear. the chat box. Just the chat box, yes. yeah. And it's clear that a lot of people are finding what's happening this year difficult and tough. Um, but all of my senses say as we move into next year, we're going to see things accelerate and it's effectively going to get worse. And I just wanted to restate to people this important thing that, that staying sane, which is a key thing to do, a lot of this is about not just sitting there, it's actually doing something. It's writing that letter, challenging somebody, speaking to a friend, teaming up, helping other people. It's doing something starts to let you deal with this this tidal wave of horrible agendas which are coming in so don't just sit there and take it start to do something and you will find that you can become as happy and carefree as the whole of the uk column team i mean we deal with this three three times a week we're researching out of our news time and look at us we are happy cheerful people and we're still here so i'm going to say to our audience you can do it as well but don't just take it, give a bit back to these people. Uh, right. Can, uh, can, can, I, yes, can I just jump ben, in? Yes, Ben, just, just, give it, just before I ask Charles for, for a bit of comment, Ben, I forgot about a All little right. bit of video from you. Oh, yes, okay. I mean, me. so... yeah, I'll come, no, I'll come to you this, this. I'll come to you in a second, Charles. Ben, tell us about this little video clip before we end. Yeah, well, I could tie the two things together. So I was going to, what I was going to say is, Brian was just saying that things are going to escalate. I agree. But I think what, what is really important for people to understand as this happens is that they are extraordinarily panicked right now. And their big, noisy um, actions and, and pronouncements, and the, the, it, a lot of that is coming from desperation. It's not from a position of power. So uh, please take some some um uh some heart from that um and, and actually this is a great example of what we're going to see and what they are desperate to avoid and to um not report on is 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 this little edit that i came across um from the streets of chicago right in obama's backyard how do you justify leaving the amount of people on the streets that are out here and you're building tents, warm tents, to house 2,000 illegals? I went from tent to tent. Some of these people are veterans. How do you justify people being homeless at this rate? 
we're seeing increased taxes we're struggling to pay our mortgages we're struggling to pay our bills um, and we have thousands of dollars every month millions of dollars 500 million dollars this year to support foreign nationals and that's coming out of our pocket it's going to people from another country from foreign nationals those those countries have to take care of their people we just don't have the resources you know, it's nothing against them, but we just don't have it. You know, we're struggling. This is government oppression at its finest. As a veteran myself, I just talked to a veteran in this tent right here. You know, we're seeing people who have given their all to their country and they're just, we just cast them out by the expressway with the trash. This is unconscionable. And it's unconstitutional. Meanwhile, we have to follow every law. We can't go over the speed limit without getting a ticket sent to our house, but people can violate federal law and we come in and roll out the welcome mat, I give them our home equity, give them our sales taxes. They get the, the best of our schools. Meanwhile, some like 90% of black children are not reading, writing, and doing math at a proficiency, but they do it all under the guise of this fake diversity, equity, and inclusion nonsense. We just need to start voting differently. We need to start pulling ourselves out of these government institutions, starting with the public school system. We need to move on from, from big government and from the city of Chicago's political machine. We're going to flip Chicago red. The Democratic Party is done in Chicago, and that's a fact. By summer, you think it's a lot of them coming in. You watch the uprising of red in Chicago. <laughs> Mark, Times are changing. Yes. Mark, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'd like to go over there and check that out. Uh, that's absolutely true. Governor Pritzker, who's connected to the Global Cities Forum and all his glittering utopian dreams, has been instrumental in uh, applying pressure to Chicago and county governments to provide huge amounts of resources for foreign nationals, illegal aliens. Uh, that's, that's sort of the story behind the story. And that's certainly something that'll carry over into next year for me, although maybe not the lead issue. But yeah, I couldn't help on commenting on that. Of course, Obama's building a shrine to himself in Hyde Park, which is the south south side of Chicago. I'm going to go check that out in the spring. And, uh, you know, he's a legend in his own mind, so we'll see what's going on there. But, uh, yeah, it's a pretty sad and very distressing situation. Yes. Uh, Charles, any final comments? Yeah, just quickly. I, I, well, I think, first of all, that veteran is, uh, is spot on and actually covers quite a lot of what I was going to say. I, I In my earlier segment, I talked about people who I felt were sort of scared into dissent in 2020, but have somewhat stepped away due to being lulled into a full sense of security, which may be true. But if you're listening or watching to this, then you don't fall within that number. And I think that on the issue of trust that both Debbie and Ben have just been talking about, I think people have learned to trust themselves and to trust one another in probably a way that they weren't a few years ago. So I think going into 2024, people are the, the people who, who are aware of what's going on and take a dim view of it are going to be much more resilient. I think there is going to be a huge uh, increase in pressure, financial through uh, complete misspending and misappropriation of government money that's raised from an increasingly small pool of people, because I think I'm afraid 
go back to the interview that Ed Dowd gave to Debbie and Cheryl the other day. And, you, you know, it's impossible to think that the economy is not going to be put under more pressure by the number of people that are going to have to step back from work through injury or, or death. Uh, so I think there's going to be a massive increase on the system. The criminal justice system I see as, as being further overwhelmed because the threshold, as I say, has been so reduced, so lowered that people are going to find themselves falling foul of all sorts of rules and regulations. But I don't see that as being overall a negative because I think that history suggests that the threshold for some sort of peaceful civil disobedience and and or a tax rebellion of some sort to curb and control government spending, I think is very likely. Yeah, yeah. great. Okay, well, I just wanted to, to end by saying a couple of things. First of all, this issue of desperation that Ben was talking about, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, the so the authorities are getting desperate. Uh, and part of the reason, as Debbie was pointing out, is because of this collapse in trust. Trust is clearly a big issue for them. Um, and we need to keep this pressure on uh, because the more desperate they become, uh, the more stupid mistakes they make, uh, the more obvious and the harder it is for uh, people that aren't actively engaged in the issues that we see. Um, it becomes more difficult for, for people to uh, ignore what's going on. And that indeed just builds the pressure uh, on the people that are pulling these uh, these policies out of the woodwork. So uh, we've got to do much more of that in 2024. I think 2024, Vanessa said escalation is the word. I think that's absolutely what is going to happen. I think uh, it's going to be a very grim uh, picture for us if we allow ourselves to view it as being grim. Uh, but just keep in mind the reason that this is escalating in the way that it, things are escalating and the way that they are is because of the pressure uh, that the authorities are faced with and the fact that they're not achieving their goals. Um, so we've got to we've got to encourage this uh, pressure, this escalation yep. to build. Um, in fact, because things are going to get worse before they get better, and uh, so that's that. And then finally, I just wanted to say from everybody at the UK column, a massive thank you to everybody that has supported us in 2023. Uh, we have lost a couple of members of the team. We have a couple of new members of the team. So Charles and Ben, absolutely welcome, and. Uh, uh, all, everybody else that's contributing in terms of content. I want to say thank you to them as well, but especially to our members and uh, people that are making donations because we can't do this without your help and you have helped this year. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll see you again in the new year and I hope everybody has a great Christmas. Yeah, indeed. It's uh, We're here, we're doing what we're doing. We want to do more. We can only do it with your help, and it's been utterly brilliant, the support that's coming in from the uh, the members, the subscribers, and the donators. If you're new to the, to the news, UK Column News, and you're watching but not yet uh, part of the membership team, think about that, because as it gets worse next year, we're going to need all the help we can get. And I think we've got a last yeah, slide. Just, just yeah. uh, thanks to everybody that sent a Christmas card. I mean, we put some of them up here for... For people to see, uh, and uh, well, Brian took a picture of them. And thanks very much for the Christmas tree. It was the only Christmas tree that we that we put up in the office. Well, unfortunately, year. real ones are green, and that can cause some certain video problems. But uh, Stephanie was very proud to open that card, and well, up popped a Christmas tree. Yeah. So who can we? We're very pleased. And uh, I. 
<laughs> I just wanted to give a special uh, mention to Mark Anderson, who's been incredibly um, resilient, brave and upstanding today because I made a mistake and failed to send him a, an email yesterday. So I was forced to give him a call to say, would you appear on the news with us today? And uh, Mark received that call at six o'clock this morning, American time. So I know he got straight out of his warm, cozy bed. I'm, I'm going to say it's not Mark that needs... It's, 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 it's Mrs. Mark. Yes, yes. Mrs. Mark that needs this, yes. How much trouble did you get in, Mark? That's our question. What's that? How much trouble did you get in? Oh, uh, really? None at all. Uh, uh, you know, maybe the maybe the furled brow a little bit or something, but it, uh -huh. it's uh, you know, I thought you had a day off kind of look, but that's okay. I said to Brian, "Who is this?" <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Well. Uh, yes. Oh, I, I was going to flash my my uh, my Tony Blair Masonic sign just to sign off here. You know. Okay. Like, we, we, we don't want any flashing on this program, no, Mark. No, we no, want to be very clear about this. I, think, <laughs> I think it's time to end. Yes. So. Thank, you, thank you again. Have a great Christmas. Uh, we will see you in the new year. Don't forget to watch uh, the uh, Gutsy Women interviews uh, during the break. Yeah, excellent. We'll see you in 2024. Good grief. Bye-bye. Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. Have a Christmas. Bye-bye.